Good morning. That first song we sang, Come, Now is the Time to Worship, reminds me of, well, a few years ago, maybe you remember it, when, when uh, the nation of Iraq was overcome and Mr. Hussein was removed from office. And it began to open up opportunities for people to, to go to Iraq. And there were some missionaries, actually there were about four missionaries from Pioneers, who went to Iraq just to kind of walk the streets of some of the major cities and just kind of peruse around, see what, what opportunities were available in Iraq. And the people that they were encountering were coming to them, knowing that they were Christians, coming to them and saying, come, now is the time. They didn't say worship, but they said, come, now is the time. And every time I hear that song, it's, my heart just kind of thumps because I think there were people that at, a, at an opportune time were, were calling. You know, it was kind of like when, when Paul went forward and he had the Macedonian call and said, come over and help us, come over, you know. And you know, that's the sound that's out in the world today. The sad part is, we don't hear it. The sad part is, we really don't hear it. Um, I just came from a land that's an incredible place. An incredible place. And that's just simply what the people are doing. The, the real people, not the political ones, of course, but the real people are crying, come, now is the time. And you know what? God's faithful. Because God is doing some things in the land of Burma that are just, humanly speaking, no one thought they'd ever, they'd ever come to be. And you can just see little by little, you know. That's another little song, isn't it? Little by little, every day, right? How many of you know that song? Good. You're with me. And they're, they're just crying, come, come, now is the time, come. And uh, several people, of course, they say to me, so how was your trip? And you never know whether a person's looking for the one word answer, the one sentence answer, or whether they really want to sit down and hear it all. So, in the next two days, you guys have no choice. <laughs> you have no choice. I'm going to bring a basketball tomorrow. And, um, well, I should have brought it today, likely, but... Um, so I'm going to leave that with you. Now you'll have to find out why I was going to bring a basketball. But about, <clears throat> what I want to share this morning is, is a couple of verses from... from um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. You may have heard me speak on these verses before. Um, but these verses are just so relevant. They're just so relevant for the day that we, that we live in. Um, Paul, of course, is writing this, this letter to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church was like, well, it's like so many churches today. There's issues, there's struggles, there's, you know, all these various hang-ups simply because there's people involved. But the Lord's also involved, and the Lord wants to, to grow his church, his, the body, the bride. He wants to grow it, and he wants you and I to be part of that. He wants you and I to be healthy and involved in, in this, whole, this whole aspect. And so Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and, and he's telling them in, verse, in chapter 16 and following 
verses he's talking to them. You know, I'm going to pass through Macedonia and I'm going to come to Ephesus. And, and well, I'm going to trust that I'll get to where you guys are. Um, you know, but there's, there's an open door in Ephesus. In verse 9 it says, For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. So here's Paul writing to the church, telling them about his, his, his pilgrimage and where he's going to come and go. And he's saying to them, don't stop in Ephesus because there's a great door there. And you know, the church in Ephesus was likely the, the primary church of, of the whole area. But there were problems. That was the great door that Paul's talking about. His great door here basically was, was not so much the fact that it was, you know, this wonderful land of 60 million people who need to hear the gospel. No, it was the church he was addressing. It was the church in Ephesus that he was referring to. And I looked at a few things and think, well, why is this? The incredible thing is that Paul recognizes a great door open. Now, when Paul recognizes that there's a great door, um, you, get, you should sort of stop and think, now, just how big an opportunity is this for Paul? For Paul to say it's a great door. But he also says it was effectual. And I looked up the word and... and well, it just simply means that the reason it's effectual is because God, it's God's door. God has opened the door. And when God opens the door in your life, it, it's meant to be effectual. And not on, because of our strength or our merit or, or anything, but because God wants to simply use you. He wants, to, he wants to empower you with this door of opportunity. But then Paul says, but to many adversaries. And the adversaries Paul was talking about here were within the church. You see, the people in the church had lost all recognition that, the, that there was the Holy Spirit. They weren't, being, they weren't being moved. They didn't recognize the Holy Spirit. Many of them had turned their backs because of any instruction whatsoever. We don't want to hear about it. We don't need it. We're mature now. We don't need to hear that. We don't need to be challenged in our walk with the Lord. And the Word of God had become what? Ineffectual. The Word of God was having no effect on, them, on those people in Ephesus at all. Those were the adversaries. And you know, as, as I travel, okay, and I do a little traveling, and I speak in a lot of churches, and I go to a lot of areas, and, and people are always saying to me, what's wrong with the church? And you know, we can observe it. I'm not being critical, I'm only observing and we, the North American church, we really need to consider ourselves, friends. And, and you are the generation that's going to change our church today. You're the generation that's going to change this whole world. Because you're the generation of now. Come, now is the time. And you're the now generation. I don't know what they refer to you to. I was a boomer. Oh, no, yeah, baby boomer. I don't know what Mr. McMahon was because he's likely a generation behind me. What are you this day and age? What do they call you? X, Y, Z or Z if you're from the U.S.? But... Now what? A millennial generation. That's good. All right. How many of you were aware of that? Oh, good. They're, all, they're not all millennials here, are they? <laughs> they didn't get it. It's a time joke. You see, the church today, honestly, in observation, our church today, we are becoming so equipped 
to trust in our own strength and in our own programs and so on that we're just kind of forgetting that there's the Holy Spirit. We're just kind of forgetting that the Word of God is truth. It's powerful. It's authority. The Bible says it's what? The Word of God is what? The power unto salvation. That means it's able to change lives. And you know what? We need a listening ear. We need, a, we need a listening ear so that the Holy Spirit can take the Word of God and change our thinking. What does the Bible say? Be not what? Conformed to this world, but be transformed by how? How? Are you sure about that? Tell me confidently. Renewing of your mind. How does that happen? The Word of God. You see, the power of salvation is not just to get saved, but is to continually, <laughs> continually, continue until you are what? Ultimately saved. And that's what God wants to do. And, and what I want to share this morning is this, this whole fact of, you asked me a question, someone actually asked me a question, how was your trip to Burma? And, and so what I want to do today is, tomorrow I'm going to show you some visuals on, on Burma. I'm going to share more specifically about what's happening today. But I want to set up a, a little bit of a platform, a little bit of a stage for you to understand what great things are happening today and how the, the doors of opportunity are opening. There are adversaries, though, many adversaries. Adversaries even that, that we can, that we can um, inject here that are beyond this in the sense of these are unsaved nation and, and so on and so forth. But Burma um, is located, of course, in Southeast Asia. Uh, I'll show you a map tomorrow, but it's, it's kind of located between, uh, on the left it would be India, and then on the right is Thailand, north is China, and, and so on, a little bit of Laos on the, on the east side. But Burma is actually the largest country in Southeast Asia. Burma is known as the Golden Land. Now, if you, when, you're, when you're flying into Burma, um, coming into the, to the city of Yangon, which was formerly known as, as Rangoon, when you're coming into that, flying in on an airplane, and you can, you can sort of scout over the, the horizon, and you see the, the jungles, and you see the, the kind of outlying areas, you see this metropolis of a city, a huge city, six million plus people in this city. And, and you're flying in, and as you look out, you see all these shiny spots out there, and you think, what is that? What is that? And then as you come down a little bit further, you realize that, oh, that's a temple. And the land is just full of, as you say, there's over 4,000 golden pagodas in Burma. A pagoda is simply a Buddhist temple. And in places where, where there is nothing to attract anyone to live there, and yet people are, are really forced to live there, in the midst of them you see this huge golden pagoda. I'll show you a picture of one tomorrow. The gold on the, on the main temple is six inches thick. There's over eight tons of gold just in, temp, just in the, top, the, the um, we'll call it the roof or whatever, but it's on the cone of the temple. Over eight tons of gold. At $2,000 a troy ounce, you could put, most countries could become out of, out of debt if they had that. The golden land is also known as the land of immortality. Wow. The millennial generation 
Wouldn't it be nice to live in the land of immortality? How would you like to live in the land of immortality? Hmm? Anyone want to live in the land of immortality? Yeah, I, I'd like to live in the land of immortality. <laughs> I wouldn't have a sore leg anymore. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have to be stiff. My shoulder wouldn't bother me. Wow. The immort- land of immortality. Burma was conquered by the British in the 19th century, a long time ago. It was incorporated into the Indian Empire at the time because Britain controlled India. And so Burma was made part of that, that empire. But in 1948, um, that was actually the year before I was born, Burma received her independence from, from, um, from Britain. In 1962, a military-controlled government took over. Uh, it was a forced government, and it took over. It was, the country was being led by a series of generals. Um, it was a dictatorship. It was military. It was very restrictive. It was just total control. Um, and in 1990, there was a man uh, whose daughter's quite in the news these days, but this gentleman um, was a leader of a Democratic Party, and he wanted to, to change Burma and have Burma returned to what it had been, uh, a flourishing country at that time. And so uh, he entered the election, and he won by about 80%. That's kind of a serious victory, isn't it? And yet the military wouldn't acknowledge that, and so they continued to, to control the country even until this day. And that man's daughter is Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, some of you may have heard of her. She's, she's quite, a, quite a lady. She won the Nobel Peace Prize, and for that she received 15 years in prison. Um, it's quite an honor. But she, she was recently released, and just, just things are really, really happening. I'll share more about that tomorrow. But in 1966, going back to this, this military government, in 1962, they took over. In 1966, they expelled all the missionaries. They expelled everybody who was not Buddhist. They expelled them from the country. And so the, the country itself is one of the richest countries. Uh, it's got more natural resources and minerals than any other country. And yet, because of the government restraints and the corruption, it is a very, very poor nation. It's likely ranks about fourth in the world. Um, it has been running second with North Korea as far as a, a popular place for tourism over the last several years. Uh, but that's changing. That's changing. Because um, most of you understand North Korea more than you, than you understand Burma, or what is called today Myanmar. And I, I may refer to it as Myanmar, I may refer to it as Burma, and that's simply because... Uh, a lot of countries in the world still only recognize it as Burma. They don't recognize it as Myanmar. Myanmar was the name change based on this military government, and that's why they changed the city of Rangoon to Yangon. And uh, they moved the capital to Napada and in the north, and so they did, did a lot of changes. Um, but Burma has 60 million people. Canada, about 30 million. But... Burma is only nine, nine times the size of the province of New Brunswick or about the state of Maine, nine times the state of Maine. Sixty million people. If we were in that context today, there wouldn't be any empty seats in here, I'll tell you. Amazing. Sixty million people. The city of Yangon, six million. It was something else to walk those narrow streets and just be 
kind of be like on the tide of a, of a flow of people moving throughout day. Amazing. 90% Buddhist. Um, just a hopeless self-purification belief system. And it's, it has corrupted the society. In fact, most of you young men who are in here this morning, if you were in Burma today, what you would do is choose the life of becoming a, Burma, a, a Buddhist monk. And simply what that would allow you to do is run around in a house coat without any shoes on, and, and you'd have a different colored one depending on where, where you were. Um, and also you would go through the streets and, and because of your commitment to this self-purification as a, as a Buddhist monk, people would look at you and say, oh, look at him. Oh, isn't he a wonderful guy? And so they begin to bow down to you. They begin to give you food and so on. And so consequently, families will now encourage their young men to become a monk because it'll help the family. He, he won't even have to work and he'll be able to get all these little gifts given to him and because he, he walks around on gravel and in his bare feet and does all these hard things, uh, then we'll gain from that too. So there's, a, there's a, just this whole cycle of promoting. And you see young boys, eight years old, running around because they've chosen to become monks. And you see old men and so on. And I, the most, most amazing thing to me was, I was I'm looking, you know, and I mean, I'm, I'm green. I'm as green as a cabbage over there. Right? So I'm, I'm standing here observing what's going on, and I see this monk coming down the street, and and I look over, and there's these, this, this group of people, and they were likely the poorest of poor that I saw at the time. Now, there were some other people there, too, that were, that were a lot better off. But anyway, this, this poorest of poor people were there. And this monk walks up to them and begins to beg. I thought, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And those people were just, they were frantic trying to get something, trying to put, get some money together, something together to give to him go and buy food or, or something just so they could give it to him. And to me, it was like, there's something wrong here. Really, something wrong. Well, you know, back in 1788, how many of you ever remember hearing those dates, 1788? That is so long ago, it's not even in history anymore, is it? But you know, in 1788, there was a young fellow, a little guy born, his name was Adoniram Judson. And he came up through life, uh, raised in a kind of in a Christian home. He lived outside Boston. And at the age of 17, he committed himself to reach the unreached for the Lord. The age of 17. You know what? There were no missionary societies in the United States at the time. There was a, the London Missionary Society in England. And so uh, after his graduation from Brown University, he married a nice young lady and they took off to, to uh, London to connect with the London Missionary Society and from there, um, they decided to go to India. And so they went to India. In a short time after they were in India, um, the uh, British, uh, who controlled India at the time, and the locals there, they forbid them to evangelize the Hindus. That wasn't, wasn't a really good place to be a missionary with the gospel if you were prevented to, to, to speak to the Hindus. So in, that was in 1812, which was... Remarkable year, too, because that's when the, uh, there was a, a war, wasn't there, 1812, uh, over here. Well, in 1813, this, this order, uh, they were ordered out of India, and so they decided they'd go to Burma. So it was in 1813, that's almost 200 years ago, 
almost 200 years ago, they went to Burma with the gospel. In order to reach the Burmese people at that time, and, and Burma, you have to understand too, is made up of states and regions or, or states and provinces and so on. And each of those regions, those states, are basically a tribal animistic people in that center. There's one area of the country that is what we'll call pure or, or, or real Burmese people. But the country itself is made up of a lot of animistic uh, tribal people. And so, of course, they, they came in from India through Bangladesh and, and entered into Burma, and that was the first territory they came to. And so they, they learned the language. Uh, imagine, wanted to learn the language to share the gospel. It took them 12 hours a day for three years. That's a, that's a study. That's, that's quite a bit more hours than you get here, right? They only make you study here four hours every morning, right? You're just in class four hours still, yeah? Well, it was 12 hours for he and his wife. Well, that was amazing. For four years, he never had a public meeting. And then um, he also tried to do something. And th- this is something, too, that I, that I discovered when I was over there. Is First of all, Mr. Judson decided, I'm going to identify with the people. So what did he do? He bought himself a, a bathrobe, right? And he wanted to identify with them. So he put on a yellow robe, which signifies you are a, a, a teacher of religion. And he was not received very well with that because of the monks. He wasn't received very well. So then he decided, okay, get rid of the yellow one and put a white one on. Because the white one would, syndic- would, would indicate that you're not a Buddhist, but you are still a teacher. And that didn't work very good either. Because no matter how you dress as a foreigner... In Burma, you're still a foreigner. And I've talked with many of the people over there, and that's what they said. That's the biggest problem with the foreign missionaries coming in. It doesn't matter how they speak the language. It does not matter how they dress, where they live, how they act. They can do everything the same as, as anyone who's living in Burma, and they're still considered a foreigner. You're never considered that you've integrated into that, into that culture. And that's a very difficult thing. Because there are other cultures, many other cultures in the world where, where you and I can go and we can integrate in very smoothly and, and we, can, we can fit, okay? We can fit. We, we, we still may look differently, but at least we're accepted as, as someone from there. Um, but not there, not in Burma. And so that was something. Um, he also did something else that's, that's really, really relevant for today over there. He built himself a, I, I, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, it's, it's called a seit spelled Z or Z-A-Y-A-T. And it simply means a meeting place. And when you're driving through the countryside or wherever you're driving, all of a sudden you're driving along and you see this little kind of a gazebo-looking thing, fancy little roof, and, and it's just no walls, just columns, and it's got some benches underneath it. And what it is, it's a meeting place. And so he built one of those and began to invite people to come. Because what you do, you go there, and today many, many of the uh, people who have the rice plantations... They will have, a, have one of these so that when, the, when the, um, the owner or the leaders come or even a monk comes, he goes and sits in there and then the people come and they sit down to discuss things. And so it's a meeting place. And so Judson decided that he built that and um, first meeting had 15 men come to it. And he thought, oh, they just came because they were interested in seeing me. But two months later, one of them received the Lord. And um, that was in 1819. That was six years after he had had gone to Burma was his first, um, and he was a timber worker. 
uh, from the north. Um, he had gone to the city of Rangoon, and the attempts failed. Again, they failed because he was, uh, he was just not there. He was, he was still a foreigner. Nothing would happen. Um, by 1822, now three years later, he had now had 18 believers, all received the Lord because they were coming to the meeting house, and he had the opportunity to share with him. Um, there were many adversaries in that, in that uh, situation. Uh, there was no written language. There was no grammar. Um, there was no dictionary. So Judson decided they needed that. So he actually developed uh, a proper grammar for the Burmese language. He, um, he, he eventually did translate the entire Bible. Um, there was no, no printed materials in Burmese at that time. It was kind of a totally illiterate um, society. Um, in fact, it was through him that the first printing press came, and the first thing they did was print. Um, he had eventually had translated the book of Matthew. It was his first book that he translated. And so because they got a printing press, he was able to print off 800 copies, uh, very significant. Um, there was a lot of sickness and loneliness. Uh, several of his children and his wives died when he, over there. Um, but still, Judson kept preaching. His basis for preaching was this. A conviction of the truth, the authority of the Bible, and a Christianity that would be relevant to the people. His motto was to preach the gospel, not anti-Buddhism. And I, I, when I was looking at this study on him, I was thinking, you know what? That is so essential today. It's that we as, the, as the, the church, we as Christians, we as the family of God... We need to preach the gospel and not anti this or anti that or is that a cell phone? That's only page one. Well, well I got two minutes? Or no minutes? <laughs> one minute. Okay. Um, Judson persevered. He spent 20 months in jail because of a, of a war between Burma and Britain. He was hung by his feet um, in uh, his feet in the air and just hung so his shoulders and his head would be on the ground. That's how he spent many of his months when he was in prison. Uh, after getting out of prison, his, his wife died a month later. And six months after that, their third child died. Um, he went on and he actually ended up marrying two other ladies um, they had, I think, from the other two ladies, there were eight children, but only five ever survived to be, become adults. Uh, it was very difficult. In 34 years of ministry in Burma, he only made one trip home to the United States. And on his, sec on his second trip home, he died, was buried at sea, in the Sea of Bengal. Um, I guess for, for Judson, his... his his ministry began to flourish. Now, you've got to understand, he was in this tribal area. And every eight years, the number of believers would double. And so they said over his 34 years, that the, the believers doubled four times. That's like two, and then becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes 16. So if you, if you look at that, that was quite a significant thing. Part of the reason for that was that, that, the Brit that these were British-controlled areas and not Burmese-controlled areas. The fact that they were animists, uh, tribal people, they weren't the Burmese people. And also, he was an American missionary, not a British missionary. And so those three components really, really um, 
lent, lent themselves to that. His first convert became, eventually became a pastor in the city of Rangoon. But his first disciple was a ransom slave. A man who was accused of being a thief and then self-confessed to being a murderer. He had murdered more than 30 men. And again, that was because of the tribal animistic thing. And so uh, this man was from the Karin tribe, one of the major, major uh, people in, in Burma today. He was from the Karin tribe. Uh, he was baptized, and immediately he set off to win his own tribesmen. And he found out that when he went back into the jungles, that many of these people were already prepared, because in their animistic beliefs, there were certain things that he could tie in, even to the Old Testament, you know, the sacrifices and those kinds of things. And it's amazing, because in the world today, there are a lot of places where these old, you know, the, the, the older things that we would think of from the Old Testament are tied into their, to their belief system and their practices. Um, Adoniram Judson started at 17 years of age, died when he was 61. Um, tomorrow, I will tell you his legacy, because when he arrived in Burma, his objective was, was to translate the Bible and plant one church of 100 members. That was his objective, to translate the Bible and see a hundred people in one church. Seventeen years old, he made a choice, and it's amazing what God has done with his life. And I want to challenge you this morning and again tomorrow to, to really consider, where would God have you go in this world today? Who is it in the world today that's saying, come? Now is the time that you could say, you know what, I'm going to go. I'm going to attempt to do that for God. And God will never fail you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for Adoniram Judson and for the testimony that he leaves today. Thank you as a young man of 17 years old that he made a commitment to trust a faithful God who delivered him and, and used him and changed, uh, just changed society, even here, Lord, even in the U.S., even in Europe, around the world. And yet, I think 200 years later, the door of opportunity is just opening wide for this land of Burma. And so, Lord, I just thank you for this uh, time we've shared this morning, and I pray that you will um, just continue to work in our hearts and lives and help us to to realize um, who you are in, in, in your plan for our lives. Help us, Lord, to be willing and faithful to obey. Um, dismiss us now, and uh, we look forward to what you have in store for us the rest of this day. In Christ's name, amen.